feel like I need to put this disclaimer out there that uh, just, just to prepare you, I, I, I tried something different this week, and uh, so I've handwritten my notes, which seemed like a good idea at the time, um, but I, I realized uh, last night that I had grossly underestimated the legibility of my own handwriting. So uh, if, if it looks like I'm having a stroke up here, I am probably not. Uh, I'm just really trying to, to, to read my notes. So um, we will get through this together. But let's go ahead and pray and seek the Lord's blessing um, on the teaching of his word this morning. Our Father, oh, what a joy it is to, uh, to come before you together with um, these brothers and sisters and uh, to come under your word. And Father, we thank you that you are a, a good father who knows how to give good gifts to your children and that um, we can ask confidently for your Holy Spirit to illumine the scriptures to us. Um, knowing that you will and that your word goes forth with power and that it does not return to you void. And so I claim that promise and I put my trust in the power of your scriptures and not in any ability of mine for, um, Lord, you know my weakness. Uh, I just ask for, for your blessing on the word, for Christ to be magnified. And may you receive the praise in Jesus' name, amen. I do not know the man. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know him. Let me be damned if I know him. These are the words that were uttered by the man who authored the book we are surveying together this morning. The first letter of the Apostle Peter. Peter, the outspoken the bold, impetuous Peter, leader of the apostles who walked on water, who, when asked, who do you say that I am? By the Lord Jesus, confessed, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter, who witnessed the shining glory of Jesus' deity on the Mount of Transfiguration. The same Peter who brashly declared, if all of these others forsake you, Lord, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. But on the night that Jesus was betrayed, when the heat was on and his faith was tested, it buckled under the strain, it faltered, and, G and Peter denied Jesus three times. The rooster crowed, and Jesus, under guard, surrounded by his enemies, turned and looked at his friend and follower. And we're told that Peter went out and wept bitterly. I believe that bearing in mind this particular event from the, the Apostle Peter's life, as well as his subsequent restoration and commissioning to shepherd the flock by the resurrected Lord is key to understanding his heart behind this letter to the church we're studying together. See, he is writing to believers who are enduring the greatest persecution and suffering that the church had ever known. Maligned and hated by their neighbors, 
persecuted by the state for their refusal, refusal to worship Caesar. The heat was on. The church's faith was being tested. And what Peter had learned through his own failure is what is going to help them succeed. And the humility, the thankfulness for God's grace in the gospel, and the trust in the sovereign purpose of God that Peter had learned is what these believers now need to stand firm in their suffering. And so delivering this truth to them, that they need to stand firm in the faith, is precisely the purpose that Peter has in writing this letter and that he gives us in verse 12 of chapter 5. So let's look down and read chapter 5 and verse 12. See our author's intent. Peter says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Peter's goal, what he is setting out to do, is to declare the sovereign grace of God on display in the gospel and to exhort believers and how they are to live in light of that truth. And functionally, how he does this throughout the letter is to sort of alternate between instruction in Christian living and exposition of the gospel. He exhorts and he declares, and he's always tying these two together. So his, his letter is packed with Old Testament references, and he roots his teaching in the scriptures. Peter is highly expositional throughout the letter, quoting um, 16 times from the books of Isaiah, from the Psalms, and the Proverbs. I think it's really beautiful and it shouldn't be lost on us that as Peter is carefully expositing, carefully unpacking these scriptures to the church, illuminating the gospel to these believers, what we are really seeing is him faithfully carrying out the job that Jesus gave him in John chapter 21. In that chapter we read how just as Peter had denied Christ three times, the risen Lord Jesus asked him, Three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Tend my flocks. Feed my sheep. This letter is food for sheep. <clears throat> And Peter does not skimp on the servings. First Peter is a, a banquet, an eight-course feast where one uh, nourishing portion of gospel truth after another is presented and applied and savored. And my goal this morning is, is to be kind of like that guy in a hairnet at Sam's Club who passes out those little samples um, so that we get just a taste of each one of these rich gospel portions that Peter unpacks for the church to sustain them in trial. And, and what we see him doing throughout the letter is, is to pair these gospel truths with instruction for the church in holy living that flows out of and is underpinned by the gospel. 
So he is going to show these believers how they must live in light of what God has done in Christ. Some key themes that we're going to see come up um, over and over throughout Peter's letter. And forgive me if I, if I uh, call Peter Paul throughout. I think, I think Paul gets all the, the press, it seems like. Um, but uh, we're not going to do that this morning, hopefully. Um, but one of the key themes that we see, in fact, sort of the overarching theme of the letter, is suffering. In this short letter, the word occurs 16 times, 10 times in reference to the believer's suffering, six times in reference to Christ's suffering on our behalf. So we see this as a major theme because, as we said, Peter's primary goal is to encourage these suffering believers and how they can stand firm in the midst of the trials they are experiencing. Another key theme that we see in the letter is the sovereignty of God uh, as seen in his divine election of a people to salvation. From first to last, from the opening of the letter to its closing, this truth of God's sovereign grace and divine election comes up again and again and again. Because as we are going to see, Peter understood that it is a firm belief in God's sovereign purpose to fully accomplish his saving work that will enable believers to stand firm under trial. So our outline for the book um, follows these pairings of instruction and exposition. It follows uh, Peter's exhortation and declaration of the gospel. So first, the first major section we see in the book uh, is just verses 1 and 2 in a greeting to elect exiles. The second major major section is chapter 1, verses 3 through 13, the living hope of elect exiles. In verse 14 through chapter 2, verse 10, we see the holy calling of elect exiles. In chapter 2, verse 11 through 25, we see the godly testimony of elect exiles. In chapter 3, verse 1 through 322, we see the loving unity of elect exiles. In chapter 4, verse 1 through 419, we have the patient suffering of elect exiles. And finally, in chapter 4, verse 20, through the end of the book, um, well, we have the shepherding of elect exiles, and then uh, the last portion is the final exhortation to elect exiles. Exile. So let's begin our survey and dive into the opening verses of chapter 1. So look down at verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are all um, Roman provinces throughout Asia Minor, throughout modern-day Turkey. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This introduction uh, does some really heavy lifting in the book. Beyond just being a, a standard 
greeting, how Peter addresses these saints. What he says is true about them is densely packed with these key theological truths that are going to carry through the book, and they're central to Peter's teaching. So the first key theological truth that we see in this introduction is the doctrine of election. Peter calls them elect or chosen exiles. He says that they are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So this foreknowledge spoken of means much more than God's knowing events in advance. It speaks of his sovereign redemptive purpose in plans formed from eternity past to save a people as his own possession. See, the Apostle Peter knew, as some of you have come to know, that there is great comfort and strength and encouragement to be found in the truth of God's sovereignty. His election of the believer is the bedrock that Peter is seeking to firmly plant these believers in so that they can stand firm in their faith through suffering. He wants to ground their very identity in this truth of God's election. Elect exiles is who they are. In verse 2, Peter shows how their election is carried out by all three members of the Godhead. First, we see God the Father who foreknows and chooses. God the Spirit then applies that election through sanctification, a sanctification that is for obedience to Christ. And thirdly, we see God the Son securing that election through the sprinkling of his blood. This phrase is a reference to the confirmation of the covenant that God made with his people, uh, first seen in Exodus 24, where Moses reads the book of the covenant to the people. The people respond with, we will do what the Lord has said. We will obey. And so Moses sprinkles the blood of this atoning sacrifice on the people, confirming the covenant. And what Peter is saying here is that Christ has secured this election by confirming this new covenant in his own blood, making atonement for all who believe in in him and cleansing them from their sins. So we see the Father choosing, the Spirit sanctifying, and the Son atoning uh, for God's elect. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, really is a, a cornerstone passage on this doctrine of the Trinity, uh, where we see all three members of the Godhead um, acting. And um, this, is, this is interesting, because like we said, Paul does seem to kind of get all of the press as the premier theologian uh, of the New Testament, but, but Peter was every bit... Uh, the theologian that Paul was. And that shouldn't surprise us. They did go to the same seminary. Um, But the second key theme that we have introduced to us in verse 1 is exile. The word exile here literally means those who dwell alongside the inhabitants of the land. So these are people who, who may live somewhere, but it isn't their home. They are sojourning. So many of the believers Peter is writing to were literally exiles in the sense that they were 
Um, many of them refugees, having fled their homes due to persecution. And they're so- sojourners now in these provinces of Asia where this letter was addressed. So exile, being a stranger in a foreign land and longing for home was something that they knew about. And Peter's telling them that in a spiritual sense, they are exiles and sojourners in the world. This is not home, Peter says. And this sojourner status, this exile status, is something that they were chosen for by God. They are elect exiles because in choosing them, God has transferred their citizenship into the kingdom of his son. Home for the believer is where Christ is. And home will be here when Christ returns. And Peter is is one to instill this heart in these believers as he seeks to lift their eyes from this world to the day that Christ returns. As Jesus said, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. This is where Peter wants to focus the hope of these suffering saints. And in verse 3 of chapter 1 through verse 13, Peter expounds on the living hope of elect exiles. So look down at chapter 1 and verse 3. We'll read verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So, Peter opens his letter in this first major section by launching into really a a doxology of praise and thanksgiving to God for his saving work, the work that he has done to raise us to life in Christ, to a living hope. The objects of the hope that Peter talks about are the eternal inheritance that is stored up for us in heaven, and the certain salvation, a salvation that is going to be fully realized at Christ's second coming when he comes to establish his kingdom on the earth. So Peter holds up this this astonishing gospel reality, this hope of salvation as a cause for great rejoicing, even in the midst of suffering. Look down at verses 6 through 7. In this, he says, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says, if necessary, here. The implication is is 
significant because this means that their suffering is not some pointless, purposeless, random thing. It is a necessary part of God's purpose to test and to purify their faith. As he said earlier, God is protecting them through faith for the day of Jesus Christ. So their suffering is part of God's sovereign plan for them. And Peter points them to this purpose of God in their trials that is to bring glory and praise to Jesus Christ through the kind of tested faith that remains steadfast through trial until he returns. So here in chapter 1, Peter has, has opened the banquet with really the main course that he's going to come back to again and again. That is the hope of salvation fully realized at the second coming of Jesus Christ. So he has given the declaration and now he turns to exhortation in applying this gospel truth. In verse 13, he gives the exhortation. So look down at verse 13 of chapter 1. Therefore, in light of all of this glorious gospel truth that he has unpacked, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that's going to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in verse 3, the word hope is a noun. The hope that is, is unfading, stored up in heaven for us. But here in verse 13, hope is a verb. It is something we are called to do. So what is hope and how do we do it? We can basically define hope as the Christian's attitude towards the future. Hope involves an act of the will to trust God's sovereign promise. One commentator defines hope as disciplined waiting on the Lord. Now, hope we see in Scripture closely linked with the idea of faith. But where faith trusts God for the here and the now... Hope trusts God for the future. So the call to set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed at Christ's return is a call to a wholehearted, expectant faith and trust in what God will do in the future to fully accomplish his saving work. Peter's argument is basically because God has chosen you, because he has brought you to life and a living hope of an eternal inheritance, a sure salvation when Christ returns. Set your hope fully on his return. He's saying, put all of your eggs in this basket. Now, this kind of fully committed hope requires discipline. And it has practical application to how we live this is why he says, gird up the loins of your mind, prepare for action, and set your hope on the grace that is to be revealed. So Peter continues on with this exhortation in the practical application of the truth in verse 14 of chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 10, with the holy calling of elect 
exiles. Let's read verses 14 through 17. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So in these verses, Peter is beginning to answer this question of how are elect exiles supposed to live? First, he says, by pursuing a personal holiness in the fear of God. And in verse 18, he then provides the gospel truth that necessitates and underpins this exhortation. Look down at verse 18 through 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The holy calling of the believer is rooted in this gospel truth, that we have been bought. We have been purchased out of our sins with something, something not with something perishable like gold or silver, but with the eternally, infinitely precious blood of Jesus Christ. In other words, what Peter is saying here is the collateral that was used to secure your release from bondage to sin is never going to run out. It will never lose its value. No higher price could have been paid, and we are not our own. As the Apostle Paul said, you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are his. So in verse 22 uh, through chapter 2, verse 3, we see that this holy calling of elect exiles demands that they love one another. Look down at verses 22 through 23 of chapter 1. He says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Peter's logic here is that the word of God stands forever. We know this. The gospel that was preached to you is the word of God. Therefore, the gospel that was preached to you that teaches you to love one another stands forever. It is always in force. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, how are we to respond to this truth? He says, so... Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. 
So the next gospel portion, the next declaration of what God has done for us through Christ that Peter uses to root all of this instruction about living holy lives, loving one another, is the person of Jesus Christ and the purpose of our calling in him. And we see this in chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Let's pick up reading in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Peter's saying this is who Jesus is. And he goes on to say how we are to live in light of who Christ is. What is the purpose of our election? He brings us back to that truth. God has chosen us as a peculiar people for his own possession. He says in verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In these verses, he has been answering the question, how are elect exiles to live? By pursuing personal holiness in the fear of God. And he shows us that how Christians live as elect exiles is about the proclamation of the glory of God before a dead and a dying world. So in verse 11 of chapter 2, Peter turns to the topic of the righteous testimony of elect exiles. Look down at verses 11 through 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So much of Peter's teaching um, mirrors that of Jesus Christ. He is, he is feeding us with what Christ has fed him through his ministry as he discipled him during his earthly ministry. And this sounds exactly like, like what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. It gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. How we live in the world matters. How sojourners conduct themselves before the lost matters because it is about God's glory. The testimony of our righteous lives declares to the world who he is. And so Peter says, 
They are to honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor, submit themselves to every ordinance of man in order to give the best possible opinion of the glory of Jesus Christ through their godly testimony. Now, Peter is, Peter is honest about the suffering that these believers are going through. And he anticipates some of the objections that they're going to bring up. Like, what about a servant who's suffering under the, the unjust oppression of an unbelieving master? What about a wife who is suffering under the oppression of an unjust, unbelieving husband? What about believers who are suffering under the oppression of an unjust, unbelieving, God-hating government? And Peter answers these questions, unsurprisingly, with more gospel teaching. He points us to what Christ has done through the gospel to help us understand how we respond to suffering. Verse Chapter 2, verses 18 through 21. We have another of these gospel portions. He says, um, let's pick up in verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this... Here, here again comes this doctrine of election. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. The Apostle Peter wants to radically reorient the perspective of these believers on their suffering. See, the lie that Satan wants us to believe when we are enduring trial, when we are suffering, is that our suffering is meaningless. It has no purpose. And what Peter is saying is that far from being meaningless, what these believers are enduring, God has a purpose in it. And his purpose in our suffering is something that he has chosen us for, that he has called us to, and that is to image the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ in the world, to follow his example, because suffering or doing righteousness, is what he did. Look down at verses 22 through 25. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter holds up for them the example of the patient suffering, the patient enduring of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, to this you have been called. Follow him. Now, in light of what Christ has done for us on the cross... Peter spends much of chapter 3 instructing believers in the loving unity that is to exemplify elect exiles. And he opens with instruction for this loving unity first in the home. He gives exhortation 
to wives to submit to their husbands, even those who have unbelieving husbands who are disobedient to the word are to do this so that they may win, he says, to faith, but they may be won to faith by their wives' respectful and pure conduct. And he encourages them not to focus on outward beauty, outward adorning, but he says, let your adornment be of the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit that is precious to God. And he, he then turns and instructs husbands in the home that they are to dwell with their wives in an understanding way, showing them honor as the weaker vessel. And he says that he links their relationship and their care for their wives to their relationship with God, saying, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Peter then turns from the home to the church. He says in verse 8 of chapter 3, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may receive a blessing. In verse 13 of chapter 3, um, through the end of the book, he's talking about their patient suffering. And he's telling them that they are to make sure that if they, if they must suffer, they are to keep a good conscience, honoring Christ as holy in their behavior. And then he delivers yet another gospel portion of rich food that, that upholds this truth, upholds this instruction in a holy living. And it's in verses 18 through 22 of chapter 3. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might, be, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the re resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers that have been subjected to him. Now, this is possibly one of the most challenging passages in the New Testament to rightly inter interpret. And it's in places like this that we must apply this first rule of, of hermeneutics, of Bible interpretation, that you, you interpret, you understand the implicit passages in light of the explicit ones. You understand the less um, immediately clear passages in light of those that are immediately clear. And now, although we don't have the time to, to unpack and exposit this passage fully, I would definitely commend to you um, a book that's in our church's library, or at least it will be when I'm done, uh, done with it, um, John MacArthur's commentary on 1 Peter. He does a wonderful job of unpacking this, this um, interpretationally tricky passage. But what we do know is that this is not teaching that Christ is evangelizing souls in hell. The Bible teaches 
it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. So we interpret that clear. We interpret this implicit passage in light of that explicit one. We also know that this is not teaching a baptismal regeneration, that the physical act of being immersed in the water somehow saves us. We are saved by grace through faith alone. And the the physical action of of baptism is a picture of spiritual baptism, which is that regeneration that is brought about by God's Holy Spirit, which means salvation. So it's not teaching those things. Um, I am persuaded that what it is telling us is that in the intervening days after Jesus' physical body died and before his physical body was resurrected, his eternal soul did essentially a victory lap through Satan's dominions and that he was proclaiming to his enemies what he proclaimed from the cross, that it is finished. Death and sin are conquered. I have fully accomplished God's purpose. The war is won. And that is what we're being told, that he is proclaiming to these spirits in bondage, that he's um, preaching to them. And, And I believe what Peter is showing us is that the example of Jesus' suffering that is held up for us to help us endure patiently our own suffering ended in his victory, in his declaring victory over his enemies. And so that is what we are, we're seeing in this passage. And there's much more here, but we're going to have to move on. Um, the goal of so much of Peter's exhortation, so much of what he has been declaring and instructing these believers in is to fix his audience gaze on the coming of Jesus Christ and to live their lives in the confident expectation of that day. And he continues to remind them of this as he addresses them um, through the suffering that they're facing. Because hope in the sovereign grace of God is the solid ground that will enable believers to stand firm in suffering. He says in chapter four, the end is at hand. So live in this way, be self-controlled, be sober-minded, live holy lives. Above all else, keep loving one another earnestly for love covers a multitude of sins. He says, show hospitality. Use your spirit-given gifts to serve one another. So he has been strengthening them for the trial that they're facing. And what we also see him doing here is preparing them for the trial that is coming. About one year after Peter wrote this letter, in July of 64 A.D., A fire broke out at the Circus Maximus in Rome that raged for six days. And historians, some say that that Nero himself started the fire, and we know that the fire was blamed on Christians. And so his propaganda campaign against these believers set off a firestorm of persecution, a severe season of trial that the church would go through, where tens of thousands were martyred for no, no other reason than that they bore the name Christian. So for believers who are living through this time, as this letter from Peter is being copied and spread, think about what these words would have meant in 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, 
as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. He says, remember Christ. Remember Christ in your suffering. Look to his coming and a salvation that is going to be revealed on that day. After this, in chapter, in chapter 5, we see his instruction to the shepherds of the flock. One of the most difficult and also vital labors of a pastor is to shepherd the church through suffering. And not only do we see Peter doing this faithfully with these believers, he is shepherding those who are overseeing the church in how they are to care for the flock of Christ. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Look down at verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So before the cross, we remember Peter as the impetuous, the self-confident leader, and we remember his failure. But after the cross, we ought to remember Peter as this faithful, steadfast under-shepherd caring for the church that we see in this letter. Before the cross, his faith crumbled under the weight of the cost of following Jesus. After the cross, he's a steadfast pillar for the church who practiced what he preached. Within two years after writing this letter, Peter would continue to stand firm in his faith until the end as he was nailed to a cross like his Lord. And he would continue to obey and to follow the job that Christ had given him to feed the sheep till the last moment. Church history tells us that as Peter's wife was crucified before him on a cross, before he was crucified upside down, the encouragement that he offered to her was, remember Christ. Those words could be the theme of the letter, the first epistle of the Apostle Peter. Remember Christ. Remember his grace. And the sovereign grace of God is the foundation that will allow the church to stand fast under trial until he comes. You're dismissed.